we should get to know the people that they're telling us not to get to know, to mm-hmm. fear. We should reach out, invite them over for dinner, you know, go into the meeting seeking the common ground, seeking common ground see- and just seeking to love them. And you'll be surprised by how much you guys have in common. And so what I always say, you know you're doing right when you're too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. Welcome to Grace and 30 on WERALP, Arlington 96.7 FM. This is Ed Malik, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sal Dietry. Sal, how are you feeling tonight? Ed, it's a great night for Grace. I heard tonight's guest speak at an event on the National Mall back in September. He started by highlighting false dichotomies between the political right and left, the lie that we must choose one side at the expense of the other when addressing issues like the rights of the unborn and the rights of women, domestic job security and immigration, and systematic racism and supporting our servicemen. He noted that Christians have allowed themselves to be divided by the ideologies of men instead of uniting under the banner of being made in the image of God. Moses Lee is an ordained minister who works as the director of One UDC, the College Ministry of Redeemer Church of Arlington, focused on serving the students at American University. Moses joins us to talk about the origin of these false choices, what we can do to take away their power, and what he's learned working to serve and share the gospel with college students. Moses, welcome to Grace in 30. Thank you. Glad to be here. So your comments about these false choices, when I heard you speak, it really resonated with me. And and of course, since then, we've been through the Kavanaugh hearings, and there's the fear of the South American caravan, and we got Colin Kaepernick versus uh, Donald Trump. Tell us how we can avoid these these sort of choices. Yeah, well, the... The discussion started for me when, as a Christian, uh, I had experienced just a great sense of unity with other believers. But then also as a minority and Asian American immigrant, I sensed a distinct identity that was perhaps not being always acknowledged uh, in recent years especially. And so diving deeper into the scriptures, I had sensed that maybe our understanding of the image of God maybe too polarized and as a result the way we see each other and the way we see each other corporately individually and corporately might be influenced by that and so i thought maybe you know maybe we're influenced too much towards the oneness or too much on the threeness of god and how we're made in his image and in that sense we might flatten out our identity into one identity that we're not supposed to be made in in terms of different ethnic like one one ethnic group or one culture group but I think there's also a diversity where if we're too, if we go too far, then we might also lose truth. We might lose morality. And so having these two in balance, I think, helped me to see that, okay, what's going on here? And if we have it in balance, if we hold these, the oneness and the threeness of God in tension, could we perhaps come to um, a, a better solution, a better way? So how do you do that practically with an issue like jobs versus immigrants? Everyone's talking about the immigrants are coming and and they're going to take away the jobs of hardworking Americans. I mean, with that issue or other issues, how do how do you practically do that? Sure. So, I mean, in terms of jobs and immigrants, um, it's fascinating to me that just even in terms of uh, statistics, uh, the Cato Institute, for example, by by no means a liberal progressive organization, uh, actually has data that would support that uh, immigration immigrants. 
um, help the um, the economy. They um, actually provide end up providing more jobs for people in the states. And yet, at the same time, um, I think the xenophobia that drives some, sometimes the uh, the dialogue, the conversation, is maybe not perhaps based on facts. And so, because of that, um, I think looking at again the oneness and the threeness, there's tension where having immigrants could have more uh, provide more jobs, could create more jobs, because uh, immigrants would tend to go for jobs that um, Americans that are citizens would not necessarily go for initially. Is it perhaps that we, and you use it a few times, we use a word like immigrant as opposed to husband, mother, child, spouse, uncle, aunt, family, things that we know and we read in the scriptures, you know, as it says in in the letters of St. James, you know, religion is to take care of orphans and widows and to remain unstained by the world. I mean, is that some of this painting of the picture is uh, part of the problem. Yeah, absolutely. And um, but I think also um, there is the element of the fear mongering that's going on. That I think arguing towards the the realities, the sad realities that a lot of um, maybe white Americans who have lost jobs are experiencing. And so it's really it's really sad. My heart goes out for them. Uh, I have a lot of sympathy for them actually. That the changing in the demographics of the global economy has sometimes driven them out of their livelihood. Um, but I think going after immigrants is not the solution here because that actually might make their situation worse because having immigrants in, especially the low-skilled laborers um, that usually only immigrants do, um, would actually help the other uh, Americans that are, like, that are capable of doing more. Do you come across people, I mean, American University, I think you described that as the Berkeley of the East Coast when we talked on the phone. I can't imagine you're, you're bumping into a lot of people on campus there that are, you know, low-skilled, came from the, the, the coal mining hills of, of West Virginia. I mean, what experience do you have? I mean, there's certain people that are just really close-minded, and they're not going to hear of, uh, you know, any particular argument. How do you work with folks and sort of build a relationship, get close to them, and, and get them to trust you, and then talk about these things? Yeah, so the best way for us is to, uh, we found, was to just invite them over for dinner. Um, reach out to them and just first start from a position of wanting to be friends and wanting to get to know them, wanting to know their story. And once we do, we actually found that so many of the issues that the media is telling us are supposed to be divisive, that characterize them as the other, the enemy, um, actually wasn't true. Uh, even the most contentious social issues we found, we found more agreements on than disagreements. What you're really talking about is is grace, is just a common grace that we can extend to anyone, and it's the kind of thing when they receive it, they know what it is. Exactly. It's the pursuit of the common good is oftentimes what theologians call. And that pursuit of the common good is uh, true because we're all made in the image of the same God. So who's creating these narratives, and, and why do you think they're doing this? Right. So this is where it gets a little in the conspiracy theory world, right? <laughs> well, we have politicians and media moguls and corporations that I think profit off of polarizing our society that drive, um, that are able to gain votes by fear-mongering, by creating enemies in society that shouldn't be enemies. And so when you look at even the, um, the ratings or even just the votes for certain politicians who 
raise these flags up more, who's speaking these uh, more fear-mongering tones, you see that, oh, well, certain demographics are willing to vote for me. So they just keep going with it, right? And then whereas other media moguls, they might profit off of it because their ratings shoot up. Yeah, it's funny. I keep thinking about the CNN folks who uh, gave incredible coverage to Donald Trump when he was running for office free coverage because he was sensational. And then they were upset about the outcome in the election. It's just an example of people profiting off of something. Right. Look, we, we all want to – there's, I think, a sense of some – I don't want to use the word moderate, but middle – maybe people who can still see past colors of midnight blue and crimson – and they're desperately trying to figure out how to start conversations in this country without putting everything uh, literally at the matches end. In essence, turning every little discussion into some flaming, raging problem. How, how do we start at the very basic piece of this? What can we as Christians uh, start doing? I, I have some thoughts as, on this, but I'd love to hear what your thoughts are. Yeah, so I think... Um there are ethical principles that we could go over, but then there's also a framework I think we need to kind of shift a little bit. And the framework is, um, is um, you know, are we as Christians particular, you know, one identity, one group, or is it many groups, or is it one, uh, or is it a unity and diversity? And I think that, is it one or the other, or is it both, is where we got to start with. And I think the bothness, the unity and diversity, keeping the two together will help us to then appreciate tensions, appreciate people from the other side of the aisle and say, you know what, what you have to say is just as valuable to as what I have to say because both of us complement each other, not contradict each other. And it might sound like, oh, this isn't, that's that's not possible. How is that actually working in real life? You know, Mm -hmm. Uh, it actually does work out in real life. For example, when my conversations with students at AU, most of the time, the students I meet there are pro-choice, not surprisingly, but every single pro-choice student we've had over for dinner, we found that when we asked them in a perfect world, would abortion exist? They would say no. And so I would ask, okay, so what do you have against pro-life, people who vote for pro-life? And they would say, well, it's when it comes down to it, we don't want someone else to make the decision for us if it's a life and death situation. It should be left up to the mother. But if you ask most Christians the same question, if you were caught, if you were in a situation, God forbid, where you might have to make the decision between the life of your baby or the life of the mother, we would all agree that is a really hard, difficult decision to make. And I don't think we as a movement, as a collective identity, as a group, have come to a certain solution for that either do you think part of this is listening that that we've lost this sort of patience grace sort of uh understanding to sit and listen to each other at the most basic level to perhaps even care for each other in some way the scenario you describe perhaps if people would sit down with those who you know have struggled with issues like abortion and understand their personal stories. Maybe that's a, maybe that's the start of a mutual conversation at some point. But at least some understanding. What does the Bible or your own experience tell us about just just trying to get to that simple point of listening? Yeah. So I think when we talk about social issues and political issues in the public square, we often look to um, like 
Matthew chapter 5 where he talks about blessed are those who are persecuted. And we, re we go to that and say, see, what I'm saying, I'm getting persecuted for by the secular left, so I must be doing right. But mm -hmm. what we forget is that the verse right before it says, blessed are the peacemakers. The context for being persecuted is for peacemaking. Mm -hmm. We're supposed to be, we're blessed for being persecuted for peacemaking. And so peacemaking, in another way to think about it, is bridge building. And so, yeah, I think um, there is that aspect that was lost where we don't build bridges anymore. We're not known for bringing people together, sadly. Yeah, I mean, in the past, we've come together as a nation among, uh, in support of each other among, you know, terrible, terrible uh, wars, disasters, things where we said, hey, if we don't come together, there's something worse on the other side of the ocean. Th that's a huge problem today as we look as coming out of two wars, trying to regroup, trying to bring people home and trying to find peace. Uh, you talked about uh, feeding the hungry as a simple way to do that. Why aren't people more engaged in simple acts like uh, serving someone a meal at a food kitchen, a kind word for a neighbor, maybe bringing an elderly person a simple meal, things that we all know in our hearts as we talk about them. If we did these things, we would feel better, but we just don't. W what is holding us back from even these simple acts of grace? Yeah, and I think it goes it's both on the left and the right, right? No, one side is not better at this right now. That's um, right. Soup comes out of the kitchen about the same way. I don't know the Republican soup from the Democratic soup, but it, you know. <laughs> yeah, and I think part of that, again, is the fear. The agenda of uh, whoever is making money off of this right now is they, they, they like the fear. They like the division. We're drawn more to their products, their TV, their news stations. We're drawn more to wanting to support their campaigns. And they want that. And so because of this fear, we can't overcome our desire to reach out to people that are different from us. We're talking to Moses Lee, the director of the One U College Ministry at American University, and an Asian American who has been wrestling with some of the false choices our society imposes on different groups. Yeah, Moses, thank you again for, for being with us. It, tell us about the One U mission, uh, the ministry you have, what you're focused on. Yeah, so our ministry, um, where we exist to help college students integrate their faith with their vocation. And so in doing so, we launch college students into the world with a sense of purpose, passion, and fulfillment. And we specifically like to focus on non-Christians because there are a lot of already um, existing campus ministries that are doing great work for Christian students. But we, in particular, want we, we didn't want to reinvent the wheel. So we thought, you know what, let's just really, really focus on non-Christians. And because of that, I think it's forced all of us to really let go of biases because we're always having to talk with and have dinner with non-Christians. We've had to learn to repent of a lot of fears that we may have held initially. You know, I, I heard, heard a uh, recent talk where they said that uh, in, in a survey, in a national survey, 30% of uh, folks under the age of 30 uh, check none as their religious belief. They're not Christian, Muslim, this or that. They simply have no, no belief at all. How do you start tackling that at, uh, at a college campus? Yeah, that's thank you again. That's, um, 
we start by trying to find the common common good. Where do we agree on? Um, what causes can we as Christians potentially partner um, them with? So, for example, um, I've actually found that um, most of these Gen Z, Generation Z, Millennial, you know, groups that are very cause oriented on campus are actually very open minded and willing to have chaplains on their boards. That's great. As consultants, because they want to be fair and they want to have as many adults and many just people from different backgrounds contributing to the discussion so that they could help their cause. And so having a seat at the table as Christians, we're able to just offer slightly different solutions, different motives for why they do things. And it's actually helped us to have a lot of follow-up conversations about the gospel. And it sounds like you, you do this work organically. I mean, inviting people into your home, one one student or two or three students at a time. Would that be fair to say? Oh, absolutely, yeah. One at a time. It's way too hard to do more than that, right? <laughs> so what are some of the important lessons you've learned at 1U? First, I think it's definitely more important to get these students to go to a church than to be a part of a campus ministry. We found that, I mean, I think uh, my friends at other campus ministries have said the same thing. Um, you can get them to you know, get involved in the campus ministry, but if you don't get them exposed and plugged into a church or in college, you're not going to see a lot of them stick through commitment, uh, committing to their local churches after they graduate. Just like we see the drop after youth group when they go into college, you see another one from campus ministry after they graduate. Is that because of community, the importance of building those ties that last beyond school? Or I think there's a part of that, but I think it's the, also the liturgical formation that happens when these students are just exposed to campus ministries, the excitement of it, when all the demographics are always the people that are the same age, and that's all they're formed to imagine what the church is. So when they lose that, it's hard to embrace the church again afterwards. It's interesting. I had heard a talk by um, a speaker I like, Bishop Robert Barron, and he talked about getting people to the beauty of a service and how people can sense the beauty of God in a church service. And then you get into these are the rules of the faith. This is what you're doing right and wrong. But it's sort of capturing this idea of beauty uh, just like when we go to our first baseball game or football game, whatever your thing is, and you walked out on the stadium and you were like, wow, you know, and, and that people can experience that in a, in a church service captivates them and brings them back. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. There's actually been data supported, supporting in the UK that um, when non-Christians are, they enter these old cathedrals, they're drawn to the beauty and there's been a, a, a surprisingly high number of new converts just by entering into cathedrals. Let's spend a little bit of time talking about your background. You're, you're from South Korea, and we were talking before we came in here about you know, some of the, the tensions that you were facing like around election time. I mean, there's typically the South Koreans are, are fairly conservative in their political viewpoints, but the community's been dinged a bit with uh, you know, the, the immigration status not getting re green cards renewed. Tell us about some of the challenges you're facing personally being an Asian American. It's definitely taken a more of a personal toll, I think, for a lot of Asian Americans, um, in particular if we have immigrant family members who are still on green cards. Um, and personally, as a citizen, that's not something I wrestle with, but with family members having that, it's interesting because we all prefer and vote 
conservatively, yet in the conservative agenda, there seems to be um, an o- like an oversight over the immigration issue. And so we hear that, yes, we're all for legal immigration, but uh, we're just not supportive of illegal immigration is what we're told. And yet I see friends and family who have green cards who have never broken the law, have always paid their taxes, their green cards aren't getting renewed. So how are they dealing with this? We have to lean on the sovereignty of God <laughs> and vote. <laughs> So some of the you talked a little bit about uh, the importance to the Asian American community to Latino community of what Martin Luther King did, and I, I was wondering if you'd spend a little bit of time talking about that because it was I, I really enjoyed some of your writings about this. Well, when we think about the civil rights movement, um, it's unfortunate that um, Asian Americans really didn't have a Christian leader, Christian prophet, really to look up to. That was a fellow Asian American. And so we come into this country thinking that, oh, like, we worked our butts off to get to where we are. And so we believe in what's now called the model minority myth, that we just put our heads down, don't get involved in politics, don't speak up, just study hard, you can make a lot of money, and you'll be successful. And so in this recent blockbuster hit, you know, Oscar-winning movie that came out uh, just a, f- a couple years ago called Get Out, Mm-hmm. They had in the cast where you had the the white folks that were um, kidnapping these um, black residents amongst the group of the white upper middle class uh, upper class folks in there. There was an Asian American man, mm-hmm. and that was intentionally casted. And so when Asian Americans saw that, some people were confused. Why is that guy there? But for the other ones, for others that we that knew what was going on, they're calling us out. Mm-hmm. We're doing the same thing. And so um, I think the civil rights movement was really helpful because when you actually study the history of it from a minority Christian perspective, we really have no one else to thank, no one else to look up to than Martin Luther King himself. We have no Christian Asian American prophet from that era. The Martin Luther King Jr. and the rest of the black Christian community, they were the ones to stand up for Asian American rights, pushing against, pushing for the end of um, human rights abuses going um, on in Southeast Asia. They were the ones that were pushing for the removal of the um, of the Chinese Exclusion Act. Because even during this period, um, there was a quota, a limited, very limited quota of Asian Americans that could come. So any other lessons learned that you, you feel compelled to share? You're working with the college students now. You mentioned Gen Z. I mean, we've gotten out of the millennial uh, phase and now we're into the Generation Z. There won't be another generation after this one. (laughs) (laughs) I believe you. Well, I think first, uh, as Asian Americans, um, I would just say, study our history. Like, like, how did we get here? How did we get from the Chinese Exclusion Act to the Japanese incarceration of World War II? And then to this. Who worked on our behalf? Who, through their sweat and blood, got us here? It's the Black Christian Church. Mm Mm-hmm. And we don't celebrate that enough. We don't acknowledge that enough. Like, as Asian Americans, we celebrate all of our homeland, motherland, I guess, holidays. We don't, when we don't even know the language or the story behind them. But when it comes to civil rights, when it comes to Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, nothing. So are you planning on doing something like that within your, within your group oh, in the future? We talk about it all the time. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, no more talk. Action. <laughs> 
<laughs> exactly. I think also just going forward, we always tell our students, you know, um, everyone has an agenda. Even we have an agenda, but our agenda is coming from Scripture. But when we have um, when we have other people, uh, the media, politicians, and whoever else is profiting um, from our votes, from our views, don't let others, especially people who are profiting off of our views, don't let them drive our agendas. Rather, I guess. And so, in that regard, in that sense. We should get to know the people that they're telling us not to get to know, to mm-hmm. fear. We should reach out, invite them over for dinner, you know, go into the meeting, seeking the common ground, seeking common ground, see, and just seeking to love them. And you'll be surprised by how much you guys have in common. And so, what I always say, you know, you're doing right when you're too liberal for conservatives. And too conservative for liberals. It sounds like you were answering the call of action there. <laughs> <laughs> we, we've got just another minute or so. I mean, is is anything else you'd like to add? Anything you'd like to say about people's perceptions of Asian Americans? Anything you'd like to challenge our listeners to do? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, if anything, just going back to the Trinity, we're made in the trini- image of the Trinitarian God. Not a one God, not a three God, a Trinitarian. It's both one and three. And so that means that when we read in Galatians 3.28 that there's no more Jew and Greek, that's going at the oneness. There's this no more race idea. It's just true. But then Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 9 that for the Jew, he became a Jew. For the Greek, he became a Greek. He acknowledges the existence of ethnicities and different um, just groups in general like that. And so there's this idea that it's both one, there is no race, and yet there is still differences. We have to embrace both. But once we go too far into one, the oneness, then we become colorblind. And that hurts minorities because it sets a normative that's established by the people in power, usually the majority white Americans. And then if you go too much on the other end, then you start getting into you know, relativism. You start getting into uh, pluralism where there is no such thing as truth, where you start getting into the really, really hard, harsh realities of identity politics where people are vying for power, everybody is looking for their own unique, separate identity, arguing with each other. But if you come at a perspective of, wait, maybe it's a both and, then maybe we can work together where we're moving towards a one image where we're made in the common image of God, but we can also acknowledge different needs of each different groups, and we can serve each other that way. Wonderful, I love that, a great, great close. Look, thank you so much for joining us, Moses and for the work you're doing to dispel the false choices we're presented with every day now. If listeners want to find out more about One U, please visit their website at oneudc.org. This is Ed and Sal signing off from Grayson 30 on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. Have a great night, and be sure to tune into Grace.